Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Colorado Springs. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, well-known pastor Tim Keller announced that he has pancreatic cancer. Also on today's program, nonprofits are growing increasingly frustrated with Facebook. And we hear about a doctor whose conversion to Christ in 2014 transformed not only his eternal life, but his work here as a doctor as well. But up first today, Senator Josh Howley, he's asking why most churches and ministries are still banned from large meetings, but recent protests, some involving tens of thousands of people, are facing no sanctions or penalties. That's caused Senator Hawley, who's a Republican from Missouri, to say that continued bans on churches and ministry gatherings might be a First Amendment violation. Hawley sent a letter to Attorney General William Bar this past week requesting that the Department of Justice launch an investigation, saying that state officials are allowing, often even encouraging, the free speech of protesters while continuing to place limitations on the free speech of religious Americans. That warrants a full civil rights investigation, he says. Holly's letter reads in part, quote, Under the First Amendment, state officials must not treat religious persons and groups worse than others, and they must not favor one kind of speech over another. State officials have violated the free speech and free exercise rights of religious Americans by treating religious gatherings and speech differently than the speech and mass gatherings of protests. He pointed to a case in May where the Supreme Court rejected the request of a California church to block the state's restrictions on religious gatherings. In that request, South Bay United Pentecostal Church, that's a church in Chula Vista, California, said that the governor's COVID-19 restrictions arbitrarily discriminate against places of worship in violation of their right to the free exercise of religion under the First Amendment to the Constitution. But the U.S. Supreme Court disagreed. It said that as long as the restrictions apply to everyone, then they can also be enforced against churches as well. Now, Hawley says that the rules are clearly being enforced selectively now. According to Hawley, state officials have determined that the message behind the current protest is worth saying. But state officials can't block religious speech while allowing protests simply because the states think that protest speech is more valuable. Now, Warren, it seems to me that Holly is stating that state and local officials are saying that uh, the right to free speech is, in essence, important enough to make exceptions to the ban on mass gatherings. Yeah, I think that's right. But Hawley is also saying that you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't encourage one freedom or one group of people that 
are exercising that freedom granted in the Constitution and then ban another group. You can't encourage, in other words, thousands to protest and then restrict religious gatherings of no more than 10 people. As our Constitution allows, Americans have the right to peaceably protest. That's what Hawley wrote. Millions of Americans are rightly angry about the death of George Floyd, and they should be able to protest peacefully. But at the same time, state officials must not use their support for this protest to infringe upon the free exercise and free speech rights of religious Americans. Moving along, Warren, another story from Liberty University. President Jerry Falwell Jr. finds himself in the middle of another controversy. Yeah, Falwell apologized this week for tweeting an offensive blackface image that he said was aimed at making fun of Democratic Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who was embroiled in his own blackface controversy last year. Falwell says it was a joke gone bad, but alumni of Liberty University, black alumni in particular, last week called for Falwell to change his behavior or step down as Liberty University's president. They wrote a letter saying that he has repeatedly violated and misrepresented Christian principles. The letter said that among other actions, they would stop donating to the school and discourage minorities from enrolling in the school. Alumni took to social media to voice their concerns about Falwell after the tweet uh, with the hashtag LU deserves better. And Liberty's basketball and football coaches issued statements decrying the racism. Now, last week, Liberty's director of diversity retention, Laquan McLaurin, resigned, saying that Falwell's tweet was a tipping point for him uh, when it comes to race-related problems that he's experienced at Liberty University. Now, Warren, before we head to break, you've got news of a health challenge for one of the country's best-known pastors. Yeah, Tim Keller is the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan and a best-selling author. He's also a church planter. Uh, He announced on Sunday, June the 7th, that he has pancreatic cancer and will soon begin chemotherapy treatment. He said that he had no adverse symptoms right now and was feeling great, but routine tests picked up the cancer. In 2017, Keller retired as senior pastor of Redeemer, the 5,000-member church that he founded, and he's now focused his energies on Redeemer City to City, a leadership training program for pastors trying to replicate his success in other urban environments. Pancreatic cancer, Natasha, is notoriously difficult to diagnose, and as a result, many cases are not identified until they are already spread, making it one of the most lethal forms of cancer. But if it's caught early, and in this case it was, survival rates can be comparable to other forms of cancer. And Keller, in his Facebook post, wrote that his doctors discovered his cancer three weeks ago and that in what he described as a providential intervention. He said that he has already undergone surgery since that time. Yeah, uh, Tim Keller is celebrated in evangelical circles for being able to build a thriving megachurch, which is normally something that you would see maybe in the Midwest or southern suburbs of this country, in the very secular setting of Manhattan. Uh, Keller came to wide notice in 2008 when his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. Keller has also written a number of other books since then, including another bestseller 
Keller with his wife, The Meaning of Marriage, co-authored in 2013 with Kathy Keller. Warren, I understand that you know Tim Keller. So what are your thoughts now? Well, w- among other things, of course, I'm you know concerned about uh, Tim Keller uh, and uh, you know just that he gets uh, great medical care and that his friends and family come around him. Uh, I would also say that you know Tim, I, I first met Tim Keller when he when he founded the church uh, way back in the day. My my brother-in-law was a graduate student at Columbia University, married to my sister, uh, so they were one of the very first couples uh, involved in that church. In fact, my sister was Tim Keller's secretary, an unpaid secretary, volunteer secretary, for the first six months of that church's existence. So I've, um, you know, known about and been following Tim Keller's career for close to 30 years. And, you know, one of the things that I've just always loved about Tim is that he's so humble. Uh, He's not, you know, an extrovert at all. Uh, He um, doesn't seek the limelight. And uh, even as he's gotten pretty famous in evangelical circles, he still pays attention to his local church, and he pays attention to the events going on in his denomination. I would often see him, for example, at denominational meetings of the Presbyterian Church in America, which is the denomination he's a part of, not as a speaker or somebody who was a celebrity there, but just sitting out in the audience, listening to the proceedings as an active churchman. That always impressed me about Tim. But I have to say that my main thought now is thanksgiving for his ministry and prayers for healing and peace for him and his family. Warren, we have to take a break. But when we return, a lot of nonprofits are reconsidering their relationship with Facebook. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Weekly Podcast. Up next, leaders of several prominent nonprofits are discussing reducing Facebook's role in their media mix, if not leaving it entirely. Yeah, the conversation reflects a growing perception that the online platform Facebook is censoring nonprofits' messaging, thwarting organizing efforts, and putting barriers between nonprofits and donors. Some nonprofit leaders are concerned that the data profiles that Facebook is able to build on its users as they engage with advertising and other content um, is a an opportunity for disinformation spreaders to target or misinform uh, influenceable individuals. And I understand these concerns, but I've also been hearing them for a, a long time. Is there any real evidence that this is happening? 
Well, Amy Sample Ward, who is a consultant to nonprofits, said the problem is really inherent in Facebook's business model. Uh, These are her words. She said, on a platform like Facebook, that data is going to be tracked and monetized and monitored. So she said that Facebook is creating a lot of data about uh, those people in your community and what they agree with, what they disagree with, what they're willing to take a look at or maybe even take action around. And that creates a data paper trail that certain folks could really do a lot of harm with. And a lot of conservative groups in particular have complained that Facebook is screening out political statements. Yeah, I don't think anyone disagrees with the fact that there are a lot of bad actors out there in the world, and some of them are on Facebook. So Facebook can't just be a completely hands-off, unregulated forum for any and all craziness. And I would also add that they are a private company. Uh, They are not the government, so they do have a right to put restrictions or even censor content if they choose to do so. But the problem is that Facebook's criteria for censorship or for screening are not transparent to the users. Most of us who use Facebook have probably had the experience of seeing someone's content or some organization's post uh, regularly, and then one day they just stop showing up. You might not even realize it until weeks or months later. Or maybe you or your organization's posts are no longer showing up where they have been in the past. For organizations that have worked hard and spent money to build a social media following, these arbitrary changes can have some real negative economic consequences. Yeah, I certainly understand the frustration, but do you think that this is going to translate into action? Yeah, well, Facebook's sheer reach, the size, uh, as well as their ability to target individuals who are potentially interested in an organization's message, make leaving the platform pretty tricky. Um, There are no good replacements out there. On the other hand, it doesn't matter how many billions of people are on Facebook, and now that number really is in the billions, if you can't reach them, then why bother? So in your research, is there a consensus of recommendation for nonprofit experts and communication gurus? Well, what I'm hearing is that you can't not be on social media these days if you're a Christian ministry. Um, If that's where people look for you, then you need to be there and you need to be relatively easy to find. However, I'm also hearing that any strategy that depends on a communications platform that you can't control will eventually become uncontrollable. Uh, You need to get them off of social media, and by them I mean your followers, the people that you want to engage, and on to platforms where you do have a certain measure of control, whether that's your own website, maybe your own podcast or videos that you've produced. And you need to do that as quickly as possible and as often as you can. Now, Warren, I'd like to pivot in our conversation and talk about a massive story that you posted on the website this week called God and Guns, More Christians and Ministries Turn to Armed Security Teams for Protection. Well, first of all, you're right. It is massive, at least massive for us, more than 5,000 words. But uh, that's one of the great things about a website. You have an unlimited amount of paper and ink. And I should add that this story by Paul Gladder and Michael Ray Smith was really deeply reported. And I think readers are just going to find it fascinating. 
The story highlights safety training in a number of churches as members go through that safety training as well as a couple of consultants. Yeah, church security has become sort of a cottage industry. There are dozens of small firms now that have opened a security service. They may be training organizations, they do consulting. Two large organizations include the Faith based security network, which is based in Colorado Springs, and another is the National Organization of Church Safety and Security Management. Now, the latter one is the oldest and the largest. Carl Chin, though, runs the first one I mentioned, the Faith-Based Security Network. Carl was one of those guys that was taken hostage during an incident that took place in 1996 at Focus on the Family. That experience has made him something of a celebrity and a guru in the church security movement. Uh, And not only do these groups help churches and ministries come up with processes and procedures, but they also offer, in some cases, firearms training. Now, is this sort of thing really necessary? I could imagine that a lot of people might be kind of uncomfortable with guns in church. Well, you're right, but the problem, Natasha, is that the guns are already there. LifeWay Research, which is the research arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, conducted a telephone survey in 2019 of about 1,000 Protestant pastors and found that a full 45% of them said that their security measures already involve armed church members. Uh, In the same survey, 62% said that they had some plan for an active shooter situation, and 80% said that they already had security measures in place during their worship services. I would also point out that there have been at least 19 incidents of a shooter in a church or other religious facility since 2000. That's about one a year. And some of these have been really deadly. Lots of our listeners, I'm sure, will remember the shooting at the Emmanuel AME Zion Church in Charleston, which left nine people dead and three people wounded. Yeah, I remember that. That was absolutely horrible. Yeah, it was. And in 2012, an armed man entered the reception area at the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C., and he began shooting. In fact, he was stopped only after being confronted by the FRC's armed security professional. But I think the defining moment, uh, Natasha, in this whole movement came really just last year, December 29, 2019, at the West Freeway Church of Christ, which is in the Fort Worth area. Right, and that was actually all caught on video, and it went viral. Yeah, the, there was uh, an amazing video, actually, which you can watch on YouTube. A drifter pulled a gun during the communion service and shot two church members uh, before being engaged by one of the deacons of the church in a gun battle. Um, that was widely um, seen around the country. The video is still on YouTube. And the example left many gun control activists quiet. Um, For gun rights activists, it validated the often repeated slogan uh, that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a gun. Well, Warren, there's a lot more that we could say about this, and there are theological implications as well. Yeah, there sure are. And that's one of the reasons that I think uh, Paul Gladder and Michael Smith's story is 5,000 words long and needs to be that long. It really goes into detail around all of these issues. No matter which side of this debate you're on, I really recommend the story. In fact, I recommend sharing it with pastors and church leaders. Uh, It's uh, first rate and gives us a lot of food for thought. And that story is, of course, on ministrywatch.com. Now, Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return... 
a merger in the ministry world and the story of a doctor who, after turning to the great physician himself, has become a force of good in his community. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, Lutheran World Relief has joined with IMA World Health, another faith-based relief organization to form Chorus International. Combined, these two organizations plus some other smaller groups that will also be part of Chorus International generated about $140 million in donation revenue last year. Yeah, this is kind of a big deal in the ministry world, in part because you don't often see organizations this size merging. Uh, during the year ended September 30, 2018, which is the last year we have data available, Lutheran World Relief workers participated in 65 emergency response and supplies actions around the world, as well as distributing uh, what they call mission quilts and care kits to more than 600,000 people. Uh, organization staff also implemented 22 projects dealing with climate strategies and other natural resource conservation projects. During that same period, IMA World Health workers were similarly active around the globe. Um, they had more than 356,000 mothers under their care. Uh, they had gave them access to birth and nutrition resources in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They protected 2 million people in South Sudan by distributing bed nets that were treated with insecticide, and they provided nutrition and anti-disease services in Tanzania. And another interesting aspect of this merger is that it also includes a couple of for-profit entities. Yeah, the nonprofits are joined by for profit entities. Uh called Ground Up Investing, which is an impact investing subsidiary, sort of a microfinance organization. And they also offer training and capital to uh, agribusinesses in rural uh, places around the world. And another part of the group will be uh, what was formerly known as Charlie Goldsmith Associates, uh, which develops uh, cash transfer, school attendance and health record software, and payroll technology to marginalized communities uh, all around the world, including um, fair trade coffee. So it's uh, kind of an interesting um, joining together of both for-profit and non-profit organizations. The combined entities will have about 800 employees scattered throughout the world. Now, finally, Warren, we'd like to close with a good news story, a story of God's people doing God's work in a beautiful but very broken world. And I have to say that the story of Dr. Tom Blee really fits that bill. 
Yeah, it does. You know, until he met Jesus, Dr. Tom Blee had been practicing general surgery in the relatively safe town of Red Wing, Minnesota, which was well insulated from violence and from inner city trauma. Tom Blee is a native Minnesotan, the son of a businessman and tavern owner, and he turned his back on God and the church at an early age. And one of the consequences of his disdain for God was an unhappy life and a broken marriage. Yeah, but partly because of the gentle and relentless witness of his sister, Tom Blee did come back to Christ in 2014. That encounter changed his life, and it also had a consequence on his medical practice. He said that uh, he had become dismayed with the revolving door of violence and despair that he had been seeing in his surgical practice, and those experiences motivated him to found an organization called Life team. That's a ministry to bring lasting hope to the young gang members who were often ending up in his operating room with a bullet or knife wounds. Life team and belief focus on the impact of mentoring and fathering on the development of young men's lives, as well as strategies for ending generational violence. Now, Blee often includes his own conversion story as he is engaging with these young men. And he also tells his story in a book called How to Save a Surgeon, Stories of Impossible Healing. Uh, That book is a chronicle of Blee's own life, including stories of his time in Red Wing and now in St. Paul's Inner City Trauma Center, Um, even an inner city murder scene. The story culminates in an account of his own need for healing in the hands of, as we've already said, the great physician, Jesus himself. And there's a lot more to this story, and you can read it by going on the Ministry Watch website. That's ministrywatch.com. Uh, or you can go directly to Tom Blee's site, which is lifeteamalliance.org. Now we're running out of time, Warren. Any final words? Well, I'd like to remind everyone of a new feature on the Ministry Watch website, and that's Bobby Ross's weekend plug-in. We post that now every Saturday. We've been a five-day-a-week content producer up until now, but we're really excited to offer Bobby's column every Saturday. It's kind of a digest of news and links to stories on what he calls the God beat, religion and ethics. Bobby's a seasoned journalist, and I'm really excited about about having his byline on the Ministry Watch website. And secondly, I'd like to remind everybody that every month we publish a new list curated from our database of the 500 largest ministries in the country. This month's list uh, is the 25 largest advocacy groups in the country. Uh, That list includes organizations like the Family Research Council, which we mentioned earlier in the program, the First Liberty Institute, and Alliance Defending Freedom. So if you want to see how these ministries compare and take a look at their financial efficiency ranking and their transparency grade, you can go to ministrywatch.com. In fact, if you'd like to read more about any of the stories we discussed on today's program, just go to ministrywatch.com and you'll find them right on the front page. And if you'd like to dig into the Ministry Watch archives of hundreds of articles and other great resources, use the search engine, which is also on the front page, to find what you're looking for. Yeah, and also, finally, before we go, I'd like to mention that we're approaching our June 30 fiscal year end. And uh, I want to thank all of you who have made a gift to Ministry Watch during the past year. Your gift is an encouragement to us personally, and it also allows us to continue our vital work to bring transparency, accountability, and we hope 
renewed credibility to the Christian ministry marketplace. If you'd like to support our work, again, go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. And finally, if you're one of our new listeners, I'd just like to welcome you. I hope that you'll be with us each and every week, and I also hope you'll tell a friend. Don't forget to rate the program using your podcast app. It's absolutely free, doesn't take but a few seconds, and it really does help us out a lot. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DuBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Paul Gladder, Michael Ray Smith, Christina Darnell, Ann Steich, and Warren Smith. Thanks to our friends at the Nonprofit Times for contributing material to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.